The story of our Savior began long before that iconic silent night, and the lineage of our Lord runs deep. Disguised in the downcast and dejected, and through shadowed sorrow and suffering it starkly stands. Though at times hushed and hidden, the holy remain ushered in, never turning back when others turn their backs, ever and always keeping its kin. The blessed and beautiful, passed over and protected, tying up the promise and wrapping up the gift to be given again and again and again the very face of grace at Christmas. Several years ago, my uh, wife's grandmother was working on a family history. And uh, it was the days before Ancestry.com and the internet. So she had all these papers scattered over the counter and, um, you know, leaflets from old Bibles, names and dates. And she was trying to put it in order and, and write it out to give back to the family so that they would kind of have a history of her side. And... Suddenly she came to a name and stopped. She just stopped. And she thought for a while, and then she packed up all the stuff, put it in a box, and put it away, and never returned to working on the ancestry of her family again. And what, what was the name she ran into that stopped her in her tracks? It was the name Frankenstein. Now, you and I both know that the mad scientist Frankenstein and the monster named after him is, is absolute fiction. There's no truth to it at all. But it's so troubled her to think that there's a Frankenstein in our family that she didn't want to keep going further. I don't know if she was afraid she'd run into Dracula next or what. But you know, in many ways, if you think about this, all of us have monsters in our family closet. What I mean by that is we have names and people and personalities that are more infamous than famous that come with, you know, a sordid past or things they said or things they've done that may be an embarrassment to us. I think some people are afraid to research their ancestry because they may run into somebody that's terrible and uh, known in the world as being evil, and nobody wants to say, I'm related to that person, which makes the genealogy of Jesus rather interesting. As you read through it, like we've done the last couple of weeks, you begin to realize that, well, there's some, there's some bad people in his human lineage. Remember, he's both fully man and fully God, sinless, of course, but he did choose to take on a body and enter the lineage that God said would be the lineage from which the Messiah would come. And so it makes me wonder why Matthew had to bring her name up. Because when he brings her name up, it just causes you to have, well, a lot of negative thoughts. And if you're trying to introduce the lineage of the Messiah, why do you want to remind everybody some pretty awful things that happened? Maybe you can pick her name out. Let me just read to you a part of the lineage of Jesus. 
in Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament, if you want to follow along. I'm going to start verse 3. It says, Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We looked at her two weekends ago. It says that Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Pastor Kyle talked about that last weekend. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, if you pronounce it properly from the Hebrew, it's Bathsheba. But when I mention her name, Bathsheba or Bathsheba, what kind of thoughts come to your mind? I mean, you don't even have to really be a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. Almost everybody's heard the story of David and Bathsheba. So when I say Bathsheba, oftentimes what comes to people's minds are this beautiful woman who tempted Israel's greatest king and brought him down. The woman who was bathing naked on the rooftop and caught the king's eye. And there are commentators and teachers alike who, you know, want to say that Bathsheba knew what she was doing. She knew that King David would be there. She had it all set up and she was playing him. I'm going to show you in a few minutes how wrong that is, how chauvinistic that is. But more importantly, I think there's a reason why Matthew brings her name up. It's not so we can associate her with something that's pretty dark in Israel's past, in the genealogy of our Lord, but to teach us something really surprising and wonderful about grace, not just in the past, but grace in your life and my life today. Now, in order to do that, we've got to dig up the story a bit. That means we have to go back in time. So if you want to take your Bibles and open up to 2 Samuel in the Old Testament and follow along, whether you're using a, a paper Bible or your electronic version, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapters 10 through 12 for a few minutes while we're together today. Now, in this passage of Scripture of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, we discover that an ally of David has died. And uh, he was an Ammonite king, and uh, his name was Nehash. Nehash has passed away, and so David decides to send a couple of his ambassadors uh, to visit Nehash's son, Hanun, who is about to take over the kingdom. So these ambassadors come to pay respects to Hanun's father and to just let him know that you know, David is a friend and you know, we want to keep working together with you. Well, Hanun and his advisors speculated that these ambassadors were really coming to spy out the place and that David's intention was really to conquer them. And so they did something just awful when you read about it. Listen to what it says uh, in chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. It says, so Hanun seized David's ambassadors and shaved off half of each man's beard cut off their robes at the buttocks and sent them back to David in shame. When David heard what had happened, he sent messengers to tell the man, stay at Jericho until your beards grow out and then come back. For they felt deep shame because of their appearance. I mean, just, can you just imagine that, right? I mean, they don't even have a tail to put between their legs as they leave, right? Everything's been cut off and it's embarrassing. Half their beard is gone. And uh, they're just absolutely ashamed. 
And, and David says, stay in Jericho. Don't come back to Jerusalem. I understand your shame. Wait for your beard to go back. Go to the tailor and get, you know, some new clothes. But uh, this really angered David. And, you know, um, it tells us that Hanun and his, his advisors and the people had second thoughts about what they had done. Knowing they had angered David, they knew they were in trouble. So they went out and they hired some mercenary armies to help protect them from David and his armies. And uh, it didn't work. They and the armies came in with Joab or Yoav, uh, the commander of the armies, and they just rout out all these mercenaries. And then you get to chapter 11, which this is when things get really interesting. It's the spring of the year, it says, when the kings usually go out to do battle. Uh, it's not wintertime. There's less rain, less mud. And uh, David and his armies have some unfinished business with the Ammonites. But David doesn't go to battle this time. Instead, he stays back in Jerusalem, his capital, and he sends Joab or Joab out with the armies to take care of the Ammonites. One day, David gets up after a long afternoon nap, and he goes out on the terrace, the roof of his palace, and he's just kind of looking around at all of the homes and the expanding city that's being built there. And as he's glancing, all of a sudden, his glance stops and becomes a gaze. And he's just staring intently because he sees a woman on the rooftop who's bathing. And he wonders who it is. Now, let me remind you that David already has seven wives and who knows how many concubines, okay? But evidently, she is the most beautiful woman that he has ever seen. So a messenger is sent to find out, who is this person? And the messenger comes back and says to David, well, first of all, she's the daughter of one of your mighty men who's always been with you. And then he said, he's also the wife of one of your most loyal soldiers, Uriah. Now, I imagine in my mind, you know, if I had been David, and thank God I wasn't, if I had been David, I would have been so embarrassed for even wondering. I mean, here's one of my mighty men's, you know, daughters. Here's one of my great soldiers' wife. Why, how, what, what was I thinking? What was I doing? I, I, I'd be embarrassed about the whole thing. But not David. I mean, it's hard to imagine what he does next because he sends some messengers to get her and bring her back to the palace. It's almost, it's almost unbelievable, knowing what he now knows about her, that he still wants to invite her up. I mean, we're heading for some serious trouble here. And that's what happens. Let me read to you what takes place. It says in verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 11, Then David sent messengers to get her. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Now, I, I want to I be fair about Bathsheba. I want to clear up some misunderstandings that some people, I think, have created by how they've depicted her. There's a rabbi scholar. Um, his name is Yitzhak, and then his last name, all right, is Et Shalom. Yitzhak et Shalom says that the word that's being used here, when it says that she was bathing, doesn't necessarily mean that she was completely naked. It could mean she was 
washing your hands or she was washing her feet. It can be a part of the body. But contextually, it appears that she was, you know, completely unclothed while she was bathing. But what Et Shalom reminds us uh, is that she is now doing a ritual bath, having completed her menstrual cycle. So she's using a mikveh. And a mikveh was literally a ritual bath. That's what it was used for. And it would not have been in the wide open, totally exposed for everyone to see. Because I think what happens in our minds, we think of a woman bathing naked on the rooftop in her tub. And we think of a porcelain tub out there and no curtain, no, you know, nothing covering up and she's just out there. That, that just would not have been the case in those days. The mikvah would have been surrounded by a lattice work or it would have been completely enclosed with some windows. So more than likely what David is doing is he's, 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 he's looking through the lattice work and he sees bits and pieces of her body which just raises his intrigue or he's looking through a window and has an eye on her. And the Bible tells us she was very beautiful. When these messengers come to retrieve her, understand she has no say in whether she wants to go or not. Women in those days had very little, if any, say at all. And I imagine going through her mind is what has happened? Has my husband died? Is, is something, have, I, have we not paid our taxes? What's wrong? Why am I being brought here? And then suddenly she's brought into the palace, the private quarters of David. Can you imagine how intimidated she must have been? I mean, David carried huge charisma just in his person and his being. And he's also the king. You don't say no to the king. You don't refuse the king. And so he starts making his advances toward her. No, folks, the blame does not rest at the feet of Bathsheba. The blame squarely rests at the feet of David. And the Bible makes that really clear. And what David should have done is he should have been out at work. He should have been at battle, right? Or like Job, he should have made a covenant with his eyes not to look at a woman below the chin. Or he should have just quickly looked away and walked away rather than deal with that temptation. But he doesn't do any of those things. And she goes home, and the next thing you know, David receives this message, I am pregnant. So now he's scrambling, like, what am I gonna do about this? She's pregnant. I mean, this could cost me politically. It could cost me in so many ways. It's like David's not even dialed into the spiritual aspect of this at all. It's a problem he's got to figure out how to solve. And the way he decides to solve it is he's going to send a message to Joab, the commander, and he's going to say, you know, I want you to send uh, Uzziah, or, excuse me, Uriah home and give me an update on the battle, how things are going. So Uriah comes back and David and Uriah have this conversation together. And at the end of the conversation, David says, now I want you to go home and I, I want you to enjoy yourself and I want you to enjoy your wife. You've been out the battle for a long time, so just go ahead and do that. And David even sends a gift to their home. The next day, David finds out that Uriah did not go home. They stayed at the palace and he slept there with the soldiers. And so in chapter 11, it says in verse 10, David says to him, what's the matter? Why did you go home last night after being away for so long? Now think about Uriah's character when he responds. He says, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. 
How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Man, you talk about integrity and character, right? You talk about a man who's committed to the mission and committed to you know, what he's supposed to be doing and serving David and serving uh, Joab. It's amazing, isn't it? That's, like, that's what David's supposed to be like. And so David keeps him there the rest of the day and gets him drunk. Now, I just have to wonder if Uriah had any thoughts in his mind about why is, the, you know, why is the king doing all of this? Why is he being so nice to me? I mean, I've never spent this kind of time with him before. I don't, I don't get what's going on. But David assumes if he gets drunk enough, he'll lose his inhibitions, he'll go home, and he'll have sex with his wife, and then we'll be able to say, oh, look, a child is a result of it. But once again, Uriah, even though he's drunk, does not go home. He stays there at the palace. So plan B now comes into play. And it's almost hard to talk about because it's just hard to conceive how somebody like David, man of God, man after God's own heart, who defeats the, the giant Goliath, who writes the Psalms, whom God uses and blesses in such powerful ways, how can somebody like that sink so fast and so low? See, David pens a letter that's supposed to be delivered now Joab. And it's going to be delivered by the hand of Uriah. And in that letter is Uriah's death sentence. So Uriah's going to hand this to the commander. The commander's going to open up and read that David wants Uriah put at the most vulnerable place as they come against the city, the city walls. Everybody's supposed to withdraw from him so that those who are shooting arrows will have a clear mark toward Uriah and he'll be killed in battle. And Joab, being the commander that he is, loyal to David, assumes there must be some reason for it. David probably concocted in his mind, well, the guy didn't listen to me, and I'm the king, so if he disobeyed and won't listen to me as a king, I have the right to demand that his life be taken. I don't know if that's what's going through his mind, but man, this guy, David, is really sick at this point, mentally, emotionally, spiritually speaking. And Uriah dies. Not only does he die, but some other innocent men die along with him, and it didn't need to be. Let me just read to you the context. Verse 14, chapter 11. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to close, the spot closest to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. When the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And then Joab sends this message back to David that Uriah is dead. Now what's absolutely fascinating, and again, it's just, it just tells you how bad things have gotten with David, is that David replies and he says, um, tell this to Joab not to be discouraged. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the period of mourning, then David took her as his wife and everybody assumed, oh, you know, she's pregnant, David got her pregnant and they're gonna have a child. It is such a sad, sad story. How, you know, how do you go from the height, so to speak, spiritually, to the absolute depths of evil. 
where you lust, where you commit adultery, where you have murder taking place, where you lie and deceive. And for the next nine months, it just seems like everything's going okay for David. The child is, is born. He's gotten away with the whole thing. Except the Bible reminds us that God will in no wise manner excuse the guilty. Be sure your sins will find you out, if not in this lifetime, in the next, but almost always in this lifetime. And so God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. Nathan shows up and he tells David, you know, it's a story I want to tell you, and I shared this with you a couple weekends ago. He said there's this rich man and there's this very poor man next to him. The rich man has all kinds of uh, uh, flocks of, of sheep, and um, has herds of cattle, and uh, a guest comes to visit him, and he doesn't want to kill him any of his own animals, so he goes and he takes the one, the one sheep that the poor neighbor has that they treat like a member of the family. He takes it and he kills it in order to have this feast. And when David hears that, he's enraged. He's like, "How? You know?" He says, "That man deserves to die." And you know those famous words of Nathan. He points at David. And he says, "You." are that man. You know, a couple weekends ago, I said that the biggest sin in our life, the worst sin in our life, is the one that we don't recognize. Now, David, when he's confronted by Nathan, when Nathan says, and you are the man, to his credit, David owns up to what he's done. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. But if the greatest sin is not recognizing the sin that's in your life, there's a second great sin as well. And it's one that all of us need to be aware of. Because it, like the first sin, can be the difference between spiritual success and spiritual failure. It can be the difference between being elevated by God's grace or devastated by God's judgment because of what we've said or what we've done. You say, well, what is that second worst sin? Well, if the first is not to recognize the sin that's in my life, the second is that when I look at other people around me, when I see the people around me at home or at work or in the culture, wherever it is, the second greatest sin is when I see them as objects for my pleasure, for my use, as a means to an end. I was reading the other day an article about how we have a tendency to um, personify objects, give certain objects kind of human traits and treat them almost like they're people. Um, I'm just wondering how many of you have uh, ever had, or maybe you have, a car that you've got a name for it, right? Now, maybe it's a car you hate and you got a bad name for it, but it might be a car you really like. And it's, you know, the way you talk about it, the way you talk to it, it's kind of like, it's like, you know, a member of the family. Or how many of you have uh, Alexa in, in your home, right? Isn't it amazing how we talk to Alexa and pretty soon we start to actually treat her like she's a member of the family? I was reading an article by uh, an expert in all these things. He was talking about having Alexa in his home in different places of the home. And he said his little boy has been watching and listening to him and has gotten a little bit confused because he's now running around the house talking to all the little coasters that, you know, you put your stuff on. 
and treating them as though they're Alexa, and he, he doesn't understand why they won't talk back to him. I suppose there's nothing wrong with, you know, giving a little bit of a personality to something you really like. In fact, I read about a climber, and she's an expert climber, dangerous, dangerous uh, cliff climbing, and she has these gloves that she wears, and she's actually given them names. She treats them like, like they're, you know, her two best friends. And so as she climbs, she talks to them. And when she finishes a climb, you know, she'll, she'll talk to them and call them by name and just say, guys, you did such a good job today helping me out. And man, that one, you know, that one reach was pretty far, but you hung on there. And uh, I guess it's her way of dealing with her fear and, 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 and trust. And I suppose there's nothing wrong with that. But listen, there's something really wrong when we take human beings and treat them like objects. And not recognizing as that woman stands before me, as that man stands before me, as those people stand before me, they are created in the image of God. They have such worth and such value. I better be careful how I speak to them. I better be careful how I think about them. I better be careful how I treat them. They're not mine to use for some pleasure they're not mine to use because I need a favor. They're not mine to use to step over to climb the ladder, so to speak, in this you know, corporate world that we live in today. They're not mine to use as a punching bag to laugh at and make fun of. They're not mine to abuse. They've been created an image of God that belong to him. And what's happened to David is he doesn't see people anymore for who they are. He sees people as objects for him to use. And it destroys his life. You know, when I think about Matthew mentioning Bathsheba in this passage of scripture, I think there's a reason why he does that beyond you know, the story, beyond the reality, beyond the truth that God's grace is there for each one of us. It's because I think when I asked you earlier, when I say Bathsheba, what comes to your mind? It was all pretty negative stuff. I think, I think Matthew mentions her name, or at least I think this is how God wants to see us, is not to see her name linked to David and that awful sin, but to see her name linked to Jesus Christ and the forgiveness, the office of our sin, and the dignity and the value and the worth that he gives to us. You know, I, I know people, I have, I have friends who just cannot stand David because of what he did. Because he had so much that God had given to him. God had been so good to him that, that when they think about David and how awful he was and what he did, it's just like they, they just, it's like they can't understand why God would forgive him. And again, I, I think it's important for us not to link David and his personality to what he did, but to link him to who Jesus Christ is and what Christ did for David. How do you see people? You know, sometimes in our families, in our friendships, we see people for something they said or did that caused hurt in our lives or the lives of others. Sins they committed, terrible things they said and did. And so whenever we think about them, it's very negative, almost filled with hate. But you know something? If that person has repented, if that person has said they're sorry, we're going to link them with Christ, not with their past. 
After all, do you want God to link you? Every time he thinks of you, do you want him to link you with what you've said and what you've done? I don't. I thank God that he sees me as though I never sinned, as though I've never done evil, as though I've never done wrong, all because of Jesus. And that, that's, that's, as we sing, that's amazing grace. You say, well, the person hasn't repented that I think of. Now, that's why every time I think of them, I just get so angry by what they said and what they've done. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that keeping them from discovering God's love and forgiveness? I mean, Jesus says you must learn to love your enemies. Doesn't mean you have to agree with what they've done. If they're abusive, doesn't even mean you have to be near around them. By knowing what Christ has done for you and for me, could we pray for them? Could we pray that they, like David, would recognize what they've said, what they've done, the hurt, the pain they've caused, so that they can know the same grace and the same forgiveness that you and I know? You know, the worst sin in a person's life is the one they cannot see, that they refuse to see. I think the second worst sin in a person's life is when they see others, they don't see them as created in the image of God. They see them as objects to use. I hope that's not true for you. Let's pray. Lord, as we take these uh, words to heart, I wanna thank you for just being so candid in the scriptures, Lord, with those who you called to serve you, those who you were so good to, and then turned against you. I thank you for showing us, Lord, that as much as that hurt you, you extended to them grace and forgiveness. And when they could recognize their sin, they received that forgiveness. And I thank you that you've been so good to us. Thank you for the forgiveness you've given to me. Lord, I'm sure every one of us right now can think of somebody in our life, in our family, whom to us is like a monster for what they've said and what they've done. Lord, we wanna pray for their repentance. We wanna pray that they would come to know forgiveness. And Lord, for those who have repented and have sought our forgiveness, God, help us to stop linking them with the past. Help us, Lord, to link them with your love and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Look forward to being with you on Christmas Eve. It's coming soon.